Those of you who have partaken of the green acid, if you would, as soon as convenient, please go to the hospital tent. In this interval, could I have the pleasure of introducing someone we've worked with many times, whom we're very happy to have here, of the Joshua Light Show, Mr. Joshua White. We don't talk very much when we do our show. We feel we can do it pretty much with the projectors involved. We'd like to do a show for you tonight. We also have with us Glenn McKay's headlights with the airplane from San Francisco. We've been here two days, we've been setting up and everything's fine. They've been having some problems with the stage and you saw the screen go up and you saw it go right down again. I've I've been told that through no fault that we can pin down, the screen simply is not going to go up tonight at all, and uh, we won't be able to perform. We don't want it to be a total waste, so for the next 30 seconds, we're going to do a light show directly on to your eyeballs. Uh, so open your eyes wide, because here it comes. Ladies and gentlemen, the Joshua Light Show. <laughs> Hello and welcome to the Underwater Sunshine Podcast. <laughs> I am your host, Adam. <coughs> this is your other host, James. It's <laughs> with the wit, the di- the evening that Woodstock turned into a Clockwork Orange. <laughs> Open your eyes wide. We're gonna. <laughs> <laughs> that is bad. Yeah, when I found that one, I thought, Beautiful. yeah, we got to open one of the shows with that. Beautiful, that's just perfect. Friend. Oh, that's great. Welcome to part three of our foray into the three days of uh, art and music and drugs and nudity. And more drugs. And more drugs and filmmaking and occasionally music. And um, I think what we left you off last time, I don't even remember. Can't Heat just played. Can't Heat. At, well, what time was that? That Can't Heat played on uh, <laughs> Saturday from 7.30 to 8.30. They were probably supposed to play from 2 to 3 in the afternoon. And uh, it was probably a little later than that, actually. But they played from 7.30 to 8.30. And uh, half an hour later at 9 o'clock, Mountain. Oh, nice. Yeah, especially because we're in New York. You know, uh, it seems nice to start with the Long Island band today, really. Leslie West being the lead guitar player, originally uh, in the band The Vagrants before that. Uh, and we talked about how uh, one of the guys who wrote songs for The Vagrants during that period of time was Burt Summer, who also played on, on uh, at Woodstock on the first right. day. And plugged them in his very first gig, yes, 20 he years played, old. He did. He played a Vagrant song that he wrote for them. And... Uh, Later on tonight, Mountain will play uh, Beside the Sea, which is a song that uh, they co-wrote with Burt Summer. Very nice. It was a big hit of theirs. Um, this is Leslie West was a guitar player from Long Island. He had been really more of a Chuck Berry, Keith Richards disciple. But uh, by the late 60s, he was getting kind of disenchanted with that. And he went to a cream show, actually at the Village Theater, which was later called the Fillmore East. And was really blown away by Eric Clapton with Cream, and it really inspired him to want to go in a heavier direction. And uh, he made his first solo album, which was called Mountain, and he did it with Felix Papillardi, the producer. When they were done making it, he was like, let's go on the road together. So him and Felix Papillardi went on touring, and they put another couple other guys in the band, and that, that became Mountain. They named the band after that solo album Leslie West had made after The Vagrants. In a lot of ways, Mountain 
in the late 60s provides a lot of the bedrock for what becomes heavy metal no in question. the 70s. You know, they're very, very influential. They're the one of the links between, like, Cream. There's the foundation, the power trio, the power rock, Cream. That, that uh, lineage does absolutely lead into, into uh, acid rock, heavy metal, and then, you know, eventually... Uh, metal that you have, which takes over in the 70s and then later on becomes commercial in the 80s. But yeah, uh, that absolutely. And Mountain's kind of lost in that whole uh, history of rock and roll, for sure. I mean, they have they only have the one hit, I think, is probably part of the reason, which which happens in the year after this. Right. Uh, Mississippi Queen is on their next record, I think. And um, they're not in the film, so that hurts them. They're, oh, they're, that's right. They're not in, in the film. Yeah. Um, or on the soundtrack. <laughs> really? No. It's weird. They're a very, very heavily uh, sampled band, for one thing. Like Long Red, the song we're going to play tonight uh, from from their Woodstock performance, is one of the more sampled songs ever. It's been, I think, over 400 samples in hip-hop music. Wow. Kanye West has used clips from it. Uh, not from this performance, from the I think from the album performance. Uh, Jay-Z, you know, it's a very, very commonly sampled song. So it obviously, you know... And you'll hear some of the guitar riffing is probably familiar, right. um, if the song itself is not. But uh, you know they were an influ- very influential band. You know they they do sort of fall between the cracks. It's funny on this Woodstock thing. Uh, as we go through the bands, you'll see there are bands that don't like their performances and don't allow them to be used in the film or on the soundtracks. And those bands, people forget they were at Woodstock at all. That's right. We'll talk about several of them throughout the night, but it happened with big a great bands. number of bands. Janis yeah, Joplin. Bands. Janis bands Joplin. That we don't remember. Well, Janis, people remember Janis. Of being course the they do. But, yeah. you know, it's funny about that. She's kind of lost in the Woodstock thing. She's, she's celebrated more, and rightfully so, for her appearance in Monterey Pop, but it, she never would allow this performance to come out. But people remember. I mean, I'm thinking she's more like also you know, I think people have film. really forgotten the Who is here. I think they've forgotten Credence, who is the original. But we'll talk Absolutely about them Credence. later. Yeah, the band. The band The Dead, even. Um, right, The Dead also. Um, yep. A lot of bands that didn't allow their performances to be used, people have forgotten they were there. And, and, it's a, and bands really made their name at Woodstock. Bands like Sly and the Family Stone, like Santana, are famous because they had a career really blew up at Woodstock, whether they were you know complete unknowns like Santana or... Or Joe Cocker. Or sort of well-known. Yeah, Joe Cocker completely right. became Especially in the States. known here after this, at this point. Um Especially after the film. But there are bands that had, you know, really cool performances, but the experience was kind of a nightmare, and I think that caused them to sort of write the whole thing off. Correct. Um, and we'll talk about more of that as it goes along, because yes. a lot of it happens on day two and day three yes. for that. Uh, <laughs> so it, it's, uh, it's 9 o'clock on day two, Saturday night at Woodstock. Here's Mountain rocking your ass off with... Uh, That's right. They wanted electric. They got it. With Long Red. You out there? Louder! Well, clap your hands to what he's doing. On tempo, Jack. Yeah!
once again, I, the thing that makes doing this these podcasts a lot of fun, reviewing all these acts, not only because I haven't heard that version, as many of the versions that we played in the first two podcasts in this Woodstock retrospective, is that it's great to hear what we were mentioning before, the lineage of all these bands. In that song alone, I heard a little bit of country rock, like Leonard Skinner, All My Brothers style, and that, and that, that lead at the beginning, that great drum beat that you mentioned that affects a lot of the sampling in, um, in rap. Then you have that weird kind of turnaround bridge where they kind of go into something you might hear Black Sabbath do on a heavier level in a couple of years. And then, then his singing, which is, as you mentioned, as it was playing, so raw, so hardcore. Um, I hear all of that in there. And uh, that's what makes listening to these songs great now and reviewing this because many people have not heard this because it's not on the soundtrack. It wasn't in the film. People know they played there. Some things have come out, some bootlegs and some compilations over the years. But people do forget Mountain played there and, and how influential they were on the next wave of rock and roll music. Yeah, the funny thing is they were so new. They'd only been really a band for a, a, a few weeks, I think. This is their third gig as a working band, as Mountain. Wow. Um, I don't know how they got booked for it. Maybe, I guess, Leslie West was kind of a big deal, maybe, but still. New York guy. Yeah. New York. And maybe lo- just because he's a New York guy, because some of these are local-ish bands. But, you know, they don't have their big hit yet. Um, they, they certainly tear it up on stage there. And you're right. Like, that song, you can hear, you know, like you said immediately, oh, God, this has got to be in five Beastie Boys songs. Right off the bat, <laughs> that drum beat at the beginning, you know, yeah. the, that, the guitar riff. It's, it's so much a, a reminiscent of a lot of, you know, funky country rock from the 70s like you said Little Feet um, right little and also of- Aerosmith's Walk This Way which has been yeah. used a million times that beat boom cut ba-doom, doom, cut. yeah and, yeah it yes, makes sense absolutely. and it's all in that lineage I do want to also point out you know first of all I just looked up uh, Leslie and he's still pl- out there playing 73 years old good for him he's got gigs I feel like Immer saw him last year and was telling me it was just incredible because he's had a lot of health problems. So I was a little worried about him. I wasn't sure. Well, he's a know, big guy. You know, he's he was not a, a very small big guy. guy. He's a big guy. I, I did want to make one more observation, and that is, you know, the one great thing about this concert is, besides all the other things that's attached to it, you know, sort of a generational, iconic moment for a whole, you know, period of time, but on a musical level, which we really dissect in this show, you have a lot of bands who are saying, in a way, goodbye. You know, Janice won't be alive for much longer. Jimi Hendrix won't be alive for much longer. Credence won't be around for much longer together. Uh, I'm missing some, I know. Continue in their final stages like the band. Um, and the Who will, of course, continue to dominate throughout the 70s. But Keith Moon will die. But Keith Moon will die in 1978. But there's also this, this, as you said, this birthing of bands, this birthing of acts. You've already had two. You have Melanie, who barely ever you know, played, certainly not played to this kind of audience. You had that, that kid that plays for the first time. You've got uh, Mountain, who's just been together for a couple of weeks. Crosby, Stills, and Nash and Young had just gotten together, and they would go on to dominate the early 70s. It's really amazing. This is sort of a demarcation for the beginning and endings of a lot of musical styles and, uh, and also influences, as we mentioned in the first two episodes in Here with Mountain, that that will affect how music is played in the 70s. Well, it's a funny thing. It's, it's, uh, it's something a lot of people have said about Monterey Pop, especially because nearly everyone who played at Monterey Pop had someone who died in their band. Yeah, or, I mean, it, it, it's, it is frightening, I frightening think. about that, yeah. that particular uh, show. Otis Redding and Janis Joplin, Jimi Hendrix. Uh, well, Mama Cass from the Moms and the Papas. Right. I mean, nearly everyone who played on that concert, it, it is Brian like Jones watching. was there and died. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's kind of crazy that way. It is. It is. Um, so the next band on the stage is the band that maybe, if you think about it, seems the most apt of all bands to play at, at a festival like this, and that's the Grateful Dead. Um, uh-huh. 
they are having a hell of a time trying to get it together. They they have a lot of problems, largely because... Uh, they have so much fucking equipment. Well, they have a lot of equipment, and the weight of their equipment actually destroys the stage. It's a turntable stage, so they can get things on and off, which is why these bands are able to get on 30 minutes after another, even on the, the electric days. Right. But the weight of their equipment destroys the stage. On top of it, Owsley Stanley, their sound man, roadie... Uh, electrician, the wall of sound guy. He he starts fiddling with the PA system, trying to get it better. And in doing this, his tinkering removes the electrical grounding on everything, um, making the equipment unsafe, and basically meaning that everybody's getting shocked the whole time through their set. From now on, yeah. Um, they're also really fucking high. They finally get their shit together where they can start to play, and they start to play Saint Stephen. They get through about two minutes of the song. Which is, by the way, really economical for a Grateful Dead song. And, uh, and Bob Weir makes the mistake, although it really shouldn't be all that forbidden, of touching his mic and his guitar at the same time, both of which are ungrounded. He gets a huge electrical shock, and it blows up the entire system, not just the equipment on stage, the sound system, and the movie equipment. All the power goes out on the whole stage, blowing everything up. Mm-hmm. And it's one of the reasons in the movie there's no film of that, Moment, even you know, even if they hadn't allowed their performance, they might have shown that moment. Except that there's no power for anybody, so everything shuts down at that moment, and they're completely high. So, you know, as we said in, in yesterday's podcast, this day was a lot. It's supposed to be an electric day. It starts acoustic because people aren't there yet. Then they have an electric band. They go back to an acoustic band because people aren't ready. So they get like John Sebastian to play. Earlier in the day, it had been Country Joe. Uh, then Santana plays and everyone's up and excited and then the Incredible String Band comes on because they had been pushed from the first day because they didn't want to play during the rain right. and it goes back and They're forth ringing it, no for question. ages. It finally starts going electric when you get Canned Heat who rocks it and then Mountain, Mountain. who rocks it right. and then the Dead come on which should be a real high for the show and they just break everything on stage. Yes. And they're on top of it, they're so stoned that... Well, I want to play you a little clip. The audience starts getting quite annoyed. Uh, and I, I want to play you a clip that I have here. It's Ken Babs, who introduced them that day. He was one of the Merry Pranksters, Ken Kesey's Merry Pranksters, and Country Joe, and, and some of the guys, probably Chipmunk or, or uh, John Morris, who are on stage. And they're all talking to the audience. And you can tell they're high as fuck, and the audience is getting really tired of it. Right. Um, right. So he, here's a little bit of that, and then we'll get to the Grateful Dead playing. some of those lights out there, man, wherever you are. Light show, somebody. And it's nothing out here, but it's an enormous void with little fires in it. Yeah, presumably somebody's working on it. It's a sinister plot. My word, my mic works. It's one of the most, uh, yeah, I can see what the problem is. You gotta get right in there and talk so you guys can hear you. Well, it's the same problem as if they can't hear it down there, we can't hear it here either, but we're working on it. Trying to smooth all out so there's instant, uh, what do you call it? Whoa. What do you call it what? 
want to call it more of whatever it is. More microphone noise. All right, just more volume. He's now working. Yeah, well, it always comes a little more, you know. It's a little edgy right at first there, like, they ain't gonna let hey, the... who's that guy? <laughs> they always, they don't, they don't even know me. <laughs> Sit down. Stand on your heads. Sit down, fight, fight, fight. Fight, fight, something like that. Number two, she shouts and moans and wails, but you could turn her up anyway. Put six up, it says here. Six it's up. Three. Hey, how come you turned mine down? Hey, what's the deal here? How sweet is this As the deathly silence settles over the whole pavilion and we realize that we've overloaded everything and the final fuse is blown, the helicopters will still be flying out the wounded and the green-tabbed acid takers will be saying to one another, I took that green stuff and I feel great. What's all the hassle? Yeah, you know, I mean, I can only be scared so long until I'm going to start saying... Hey, man, I trust you, you know, if you're going to give me some stuff, it's a bummer. I'm not going to quit taking it just because, uh, you know, to blow the trust. Hey, what I mean to tell you is that everything back here is just uh, falling to waste. Okay, bring six up. Okay, everybody out there, bring six up. I got six. Six. Okay, there's six. All the power is gone from the left side of the stage, and so we're going to hassle and try to get it back. Hello, people. Just a little pause here. I'd like to tell you something. My name's Country Joe. I just want to tell you something about... You know all us people from the Bay Area. We're real LSD freaks. We take a lot of LSD. We've taken a lot of LSD. We know what LSD is. But I'll tell you one thing. The stuff that they're passing out here today uh, may or may not be LSD, but there's a chance that you won't have a very good trip. Now, what you're supposed to do after you know that is you're supposed to stop taking it. Now, if you've taken it already, don't worry because you're not poisoned and you won't die. But if you haven't taken it, I would recommend that you don't take it. And just listen to the music and wait till you get some stuff that you know is good, if that's your inclination. That's called common sense. Right on. Country common sense. For us folks out in the Bay City. Okay, so like basically what's happened is they've come on stage, they broke everything, they disconnected all the grounding, they start to play St. Stephen for literally two minutes, they blow up the entire stage all over again, all the power goes out, it, it takes forever, they get it fixed, they get on stage, they play Mama Tried, which is a pretty good version of that song for three or four minutes, they blow up everything again, uh, and then they're on stage just start standing around being high as fuck talking like that and that's like Ken Babs from the Merry Pranksters and Country Joe McDonald and the you know one or two John Morris or Chipmunk they're up there talking and they're you know a lot of them are really high and the band is really high and the audience is is getting annoyed you know they're they're definitely getting tired of like I just want to hear music. They want to hear some music. They're sitting in mud. They slept overnight in this place. And the other thing, too, is it's poor sound guys trying to get sound on, like, mic six. And the guy's just making a joke about it, screaming into the microphone. Uh, This is a great thing to play because it shows – Adam and I were talking about that 
uh, off mic here, but it does show the other side. See, the, what the film does not do, and we discussed it a couple weeks ago, the film is a great document of the period and what went on there. It's not really a great music film. However, it does miss the point that there was a lot of shit that went down here, really bad shit, and really annoying stuff, and, and, and bands not showing up, and fighting who's going to go on, and coming in way late, and the, you know, the, the whole the stuff we talked about, forget about the drug stuff, but it, it, it sort of was always deified. This, this Woodstock thing was always deified, and I always felt it was very lucky with all the stuff that happened from what I've read that they got through it without any some real bad violence or some bad stuff happening. And the funny thing is when the Maisels made Gimme Shelter, which came out in 1970, about the Altamont concert in, in Oakland or just north of San, San Francisco, that made it look like, oh, this is the death of the 60s, man. Everything was great in August, and in December, everybody turned into lunatics. And that is not true because – I don't believe the film was a true depiction of what was going on there of, throughout the whole thing. And it's not those guys' faults. They were selling an idea. The guys who made the film were trying to sell an idea. What the Maisels were trying to do was they didn't even want it. They just showed up to film the Stones do this free concert, and bad shit happened, and they filmed it, and they put it out. And to me, that's the difference between those two documentaries. And it was cool you played that because it shows it wasn't all roses and uh, sunshine. Well, it's an interesting thing with, with Gimme Shelter when you watch it, and with this when you see parts of it, and if you see pictures of it, um, how – unorganized they were as far as taking care of the amount of people that showed up for these things. Like, it's basically they just put a stage in a field and that's it. That's it. They don't have any concept of security. There's no barriers. There's no walls. No rows for case somebody's really sick. Nothing for getting in and out. And there's they're lucky at Woodstock because they're, they're really what happens at, at Altamont is you know they they do hire someone to do security, but it's it's the like Hell's Angels, which, which may or may not be the best way to do it. And they I mean, liquor them up, and uh, them you know they acid. had done other things like that, and it worked out fine. It didn't that day, you know, and right. uh, you know it's not about placing blame there. To me, like with Woodstock '99, the real fault of this is with organizers who didn't know it then and did know it by 1999 that you need to do something more organized than put a stage in the middle of a field. You know, because stuff happens with that many people, and if you want to take care of the people, they are quite lucky at Woodstock in the original one that nothing happens. Right. It's more, to me, sensible about the kind of things that do happen at Altamont because it's just a lot of people. You know, it's a lot of people with, you know, there's no backstage protection. There's no backstage cordoned off. There's right. just nothing except for a piece of wood on the field. Right. They made the stage higher, if you watch it in Woodstock. They didn't have a chance because they only had 24 hours to change it from the um, – for the Sears, from the Sears Raceway to get it to the Altamont. And plus, the guy said he had room for 80,000 people. He only had room for like 40,000 people, and 80,000 people showed up. It was bad. So it's well documented both. But, I'm, but what I'm trying to say is just getting back to the films and getting back to what you just played is just a little scintilla of how on a very slight chance things went badly. It's never really depicted, and it could have gone even worse. And I, I wanted to ask you, you said you'd talk about it later. I was just going to ask you one question. You don't have to get into it deeply. Did you know when you played Woodstock 99, even as early as you did, because you played in the daytime, did you not? I think I've seen film Near of that. Near sundown, around sundown. Okay, did you know at that point it was, it was badly run then? I knew the night before we played, because I was there the night before watching P-Funk and seeing what they were doing, and I just did not think it was well run at all. I mean... I remember getting there the night before. We wanted to go see P-Funk. We were at our dressing room at the other end of the, you know, there was this big Air Force compound, like, um, and there were two stages, and one was at the far other end of it. It was a long way away. And, you know, we wanted to get down there to watch P-Funk, and we could not get a van to go down there. And one of the guys from P-Funk is with us, and... They're sending cars driving what they're calling, quote-unquote, VIPs, you know, record company people, 
picking them up and driving them wherever. We're standing there. One of the guys from the from P Funk had stayed behind to get. He couldn't find his daughter when the rest of the band left. He needed to find her and get her to bring her with him. And he's there. He needs to get to his set. And they're not getting him a van. Meanwhile, we're there and we're watching these quote-unquote VIPs get cars to drive them to see this band. This guy's in the band. He can't get to his set. And they're just – it was like that kind of thing where they were running it for whoever their important backstage people were, but not necessarily the musicians. We went down there. They played. They were incredible. Uh, and they were going to run like it looked like a couple minutes over. And the venue, the people, the organizers just literally shut the power off on them in the middle of a song. Didn't like let them finish the song or anything. They just shut the power off in the middle of a song, which is really fucking rude, too. Right. And they they got sent on stage way late because Insane Clown Posse was before them. And they weren't organized about getting – they had a huge stage set up with all these big like uh, cutouts and – Props and they didn't took them a long time to get them off stage. So P Funk went on much later than they were supposed to, through no fault of their own. They were all there on time, and it was still about a half hour late, I think, maybe more, going on stage because they just couldn't get the stage cleared. Right. You know, so and to to have that be the case and then shut the power off on them, and that's not insane clown posse's fault either. You know, you're supposed to have a local crew there, right? Covering carrying stuff off. That's an organizational thing. When and you also have off. to assume that things are going to run a little slower with something like that. You know, well, you, just, you know, I don't know, but you you got to have an idea about it. You just they just were kind of not concerned with the right things to me the night before, and I also knew that like we had wanted to play at night one of the nights, and they told us no, we're only having the hardest acts play at night. We want the nights to be intense and aggro, you know. Um, so we said okay, and we, sure we, took the, we took the sundown slot. Well, the funny thing is, when everything you know, then they've got a thing where it's a hundred degree plus heat out. It's really hot. Water costs six dollars for those little bottles. The the porta potties overflowed to the point where, like, by the time we played on the second day, there was a looked like a fifty yard wide lake of piss and shit on the left side of the stage. Uh, you know, back aways. You know, because they weren't emptying the porta potties the way they should, so they overflowed. It was, like, gross and hot, and people are dehydrated. And so by the end of each day, people are pretty aggravated themselves. You know, they're pretty frustrated. It's not very, quote-unquote, Woodstock-like. Right. You know, and then some violence happened each night. Uh, I don't know if it happened the first night. definitely happened after we played. It was pretty aggravated, and we were watching Cheryl Crow at one point. I can't remember if that was before us or the day before. And it looked like this woman got her was on her boyfriend's shoulders and people just tore her clothes off. It was like she was getting raped out there right in front. It was pretty uh-huh. fucked up. And there was like a huge violent mosh pit. People were getting injured the whole time. We were playing, she was playing, I was watching it from the side of the stage. You know, they blamed the bands for this later on in the press. I remember reading how they blamed Limp Biscuit for this Biscuit set. Limp Biscuit totally But the thing is, Limp Biscuit's literally doing nothing except for playing Limp Biscuit songs, which are heavy songs, you right. know, and which are hard and which are aggro you know, since I know we wanted to play at night and the reply I know we got back from them because I saw it and I heard it from them was we want nothing but the hardest bands at night. Right. When you set up that, they set up the concert that way and then they got pissed at the bands for basically being themselves. When it was their own disorganization that got people pissed off and hurt. People were ready to snap anyway. It was almost like a revolt. That's yeah, but how they, I remember it. It was like they set it up as a soundtrack to that too. You didn't have to have those bands play then. You know, Everything that happened, not that they could have predicted that, Mm-hmm. But was their setup, and then to blame the bands for simply being themselves on stage, I thought was way off base right. and really shitty. You know, you run something badly, and then you try and blame it on the bands who show up to play. 
you know, who handed out all those fucking candles on the third day they used to burn that place down? Yeah, they did burn With the organizers, or if it was uh, Chili Peppers, it was with the organizers' consent because they don't get the people out there handing them out otherwise. So, like, to be blaming the bands, I just thought it was really lame. And to tell you the truth, just to get back to 69, you know, they had one in 94, and that went, oh, fairly well. Uh, And then they did the 20th anniversary one. 30th. 30th, thank you. And um, and then that was it. They were trying to do a 50th anniversary one for these weeks. I don't know which week this will play. Isn't but there going to be something? They, there was going to be, but they just couldn't get it together. Insurance, and I think 99 really put a lot of bad... Good. Yeah, it really did scare the shit out of a lot of people for putting money up, for, for, for lending their place to play, for insurance, for bands wanting to be part of it. Yeah, I mean, I really did, because they never did it again. And uh, and then uh, they were trying to get something the 50th anniversary thing. I think it's going to be a small thing, but they really tried to get a big thing. They're going to film it. Could be on you know TV, VH1 or something. But no, nope, they never did. So that really did put the kibosh on it. But in '69, getting back to what we're talking about here today, the band like when the Grateful Dead played, like you said, it's been, they're like the poison for these. They, they play this thing and it, it kind of devolves for a few minutes or maybe a, an hour or so. They, they they've shut down all the power. Then the, they're the ones who came up with the idea of getting the. The, the Hells Angels to be security for Altamont. They never make it. In the film, they, they get to the airport and they're like, don't go there. They're, they're beating up Marty Ballin and everybody and they get back on the helicopter and get the fuck out of there. So, uh, yeah. So here's the dead now playing. Now, do you have a, did you pick a specific song yeah, that you think that, that really nailed it? I want to say, like, in this set, they only play five songs. It's an hour and 40 minute set. They play five songs <laughs> uh, because there's so much. And it's not that they're all long songs, although they are. Some of them are. Um, at least an hour of it is two songs. <laughs> and I'm not going to get into like trying to encourage anyone to listen to a 40-minute Turn On Your Love Life, which is what they played at the end of their set until they blew up everything again. But the weird thing is I'm listening to this version of Dark Star, which is about 20 minutes long. It's 19 minutes long. And right in the middle, I realize like, I'm completely riveted. I'm listening to Jerry Garcia play this outrageous guitar solo, this just stunning and which happens like three or four different times over the course of the song. And I'm just thinking, God, he was so good. And I remember going to see the dead when I was a kid and being so blown away the first time I saw them. It's funny because Santana opened that show and they were un, they were just unbelievable. And I thought, oh, I've got to go see these guys every time they play. And uh, the next three times I saw them, they were fucking terrible. And I was about to give up when I saw them a fourth time and they were incredible again. And my experience with them goes on and on like that, basically. But you did say to me one time when we were working on the book, you said that was the key to understanding what a true band that works extemporaneously will do. They, they're going to do it anyway, and some nights it just doesn't work. Yeah, I mean, some nights I felt like they were terrible. But, like, I'm listening to this version of Dark Star, and it starts off right in the beginning of the song, like, Bob Weir's riffing guitar, this, like, flute-like organ, which I, I think it's Tom Constantine. I don't think it's... Uh, Pigpen, Pigpen McKern, and I don't know if they're both at this show or I'm not sure, but I think that's Tom Constantine. I read about it. Um, but Phil Lush has these tumbling bass melodies, and Garcia's descant on the lead guitar, these high lines, and it's all swirling together. And it, you know, it's about there's an organ solo that comes in about three minutes in, and it's joined by the lead guitar about a minute later at four minutes, and then it takes off into a guitar solo. The vocals don't come in until almost the eight minute mark. There's another bill where it drops down to nothing at like nine and a half minutes, and then it all builds up. Drums, bass, the band into another guitar solo at ten minutes. It's like this mumbly drum and organ thing happens 13 minutes, and it dies again at 14, and then it's rescued again by like Jerry Garcia's guitar coming up again around 15 minutes. 
And I'm realizing, because I went back and listened to it like three times, thinking after the first time, I'm like, did I, was that actually good? Because to me, like, I'm not playing a 19-minute song on this podcast, <laughs> except it really was brilliant. And I thought about playing Mama Tried, which is a perfectly decent three four but not song. good not as good as this but it's not it's not great it's just perfectly good and it's not look the truth is this might drive some people crazy and bore the shit out of some people the grateful dead at their best was an incredible improvisational machine they were just magic and the fact that it's so hard to make that happen repeatedly when you're making it all up off the top of your head is why Sometimes unless great. you're Miles Davis where it probably is great yes. every time but if you're it's other human beings not. it's not right. and you know Sometimes they just stunk. I mean, I I probably saw them 12 times. I think four of the shows were four of the best things I've ever seen in my life. And eight were probably just fucking horrible. Maybe there were some that were in the middle. I don't know. I just remember <laughs> them being either great or terrible. And I, I, but I think you said to me, if I may quote, uh, again, I think when you and I were talking after we finished the first two podcasts before we got back together again, you said, if there's a reason why Jerry Garcia is celebrated as a great guitar player – it's in this performance. Yeah, it, and it really is. I mean, it, it's a people think about the Dead's performance at Woodstock as being terrible, and certainly for the audience, it was probably annoying as fuck, and they didn't like it either. They didn't. But I got to tell you, man, there's things in there. They reach heights on this song that are just stunning and unlike anyone else. And if you really want to understand why, look. There's a very good reason why some people love the Grateful Dead. One of the annoying things about those same people to me at times is that they can't seem to notice the difference between them being extraordinary and them being utter shit. Right. And they do do both. And when you're in an audience that doesn't seem to be able to tell the difference at all, that's really annoying. And I just had – as a kid in Berkeley where it happened all the time, I found that really annoying at times. But – at their heights, they're unlike anyone else, and it doesn't make sense to me to play them at Woodstock without playing that kind of a moment. You know, so you know, you'll either want to listen to this or fast forward twenty minutes in the future. I don't know, but this is. But have you ever been curious about it? Because a lot of people are. Because you know they have their hits, Casey Jones, you know all that stuff, the country stuff, all of it's great. But this is why people went to go see the Dead and would travel and see them hundreds of times because you might be in the room when this happens.
in the clouds of delusion Shall we go? You and I while we can
So that continues into high time right there, and we cut it off at the end of Dark Star. But I mean, and you can see it's not perfect. It's not flawless. It's not the best thing ever. But there are things in there that are so incandescently creative, so amazing. There's just there are points in there where it's just like wow, the stuff that goes on with the the organ and then shifting into the organ and the guitar and then passing to the guitar and the way the organs and the guitar swirl together throughout it the way the tumbling melody lines throughout on the bass by Phil Lesh that are just so cool they're just moments where they're playing together in this stunning fashion the way it falls apart and starts up again and, and Bill Kreutzmann keeps it together you know uh, I just wanted to say also I don't it's until it kind of what you call falls apart when it starts to get into that they're not really sure if they could keep going or they're going to go to the next song. And they just, there's just that moment of non clarity there among the people on stage. Until that moment, from the opening to the song and there, and then from when they get back into the momentum of it to the end, there are hardly any lulls in anyone's playing. Everybody's playing something furiously for seven, eight minutes before they even the, the vocal. There's just. There's no – no one's laying back for a minute and just holding off and then coming back, which you hear a lot in the Santana jam on Soul Sa- Sacrifice. There are moments people lay out and come back, lay out and come back. There are no moments in this where the band, everybody who's playing on stage is furiously adding to that sound at all times. If you, if you uh, soloed – if I was in a studio and I went through each track and you soloed out Phil Lesh there – it would be a whole thing of Phil Lesh. Well, yeah, but he's the bass player. He's supposed to be playing throughout the... I do think there are times... I mean, times he's not even, like, single-noting it. He is going... The melody lines on the bass are really cool throughout that. They keep Piano tumbling players. through things. Yes. The, the keyboards drop in and out at times, you know? They're, they're like... Very infrequent. Sparser than at some points than others, and so is Jerry's guitar. Um, it's just... It's a very cool... Like I said, it's not perfect. It's not like, wow, that's, that's art, art all the way through. But it's just, they're walking such a tightrope. I was going to say it's a high-wire you know, act. It is such a high-wire act. And <laughs> it really they, is. It's, it's stunning <laughs> at points. You know, and you see why it's like so exciting to watch them. In the same way, it's like jazz at moments. At other moments, it doesn't quite work. You know, there's only so many drugs you can take and, and still be, you know... Functioning. Well, functioning on a steady basis. I do think it allows you for highs, but it doesn't always allow you to be there for every moment where you're a listener as opposed to like a play. I don't know. It's 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 erratic, but very cool. And you can see some in there of why people found them such an exciting band at times. Right. And, of course, why other people found them to be annoying. Sure. Um, and certainly to... Ponderous. The shit they went through that fucked up the stage and how high they are during it. You hear it in that... That conversational part earlier with uh, well, Chip Monk and Ken Babs and, and yeah, sure. Country McJoe and like especially Country Joe's lecture about how you know we're <laughs> I mean at that point I'm not even sure that LSD is illegal yet you know I, I, one of the things about Owsley their sound guy who is also one of the guys who's famous for like spiking drinks and well along with his pal Bob Thomas Owsley Stanley designed the lightning bolt skull logo which is you know 
the famous Grateful Dead logo, but he's also the first known private individual to manufacture mass amounts of LSD. Right. He set up a thing in Livermore, I think, or I can't remember where that little his little house was, Richmond or Livermore, somewhere well, in the Bay like Area. Leary was up there for a while. And, he uh, produced, like, they said no less than 500 grams of LSD, amounting to a little more than 5 million doses over, uh, you know, between 65 and 67. That might be when it became illegal in 67. And let me just say this, too. And I, I was, I'm reading this book now about, about the Beatles called Revolution in the Head, which is excellent. Uh, gentleman's name is McDonald. It came out in the early 90s. There's a new version of it, and I'm reading it. Anyway, so he was talking about how Lennon had mentioned and – I, and I recently listened to the Lennon Remembers interview, which is now on YouTube. You can hear the actual Jan Wenner tapes of John Lennon speaking, and I've read that, as you probably have, at least – two dozen times in my life it's remarkable Lennon's on fire during that interview but he, he comes he's very candid in saying it, LSD destroyed me and I barely made it out of it and a lot of people didn't we mentioned Sid Barrett Brian Wilson there are many people who were really damaged badly by their use of LSD people didn't know how much to use they didn't know what they were doing all there was manufactured differently there was a total culture and to be and this point about the Grateful Dead being high I would imagine that there's hardly anyone that is sober at this event. Hardly anyone. The people running it, the people playing in it, the people. Well, being sober and being audience and tripping are two compl- different things. Yeah, though. that's true. Could, the there level are people who are like, I mean, not being sober, there are plenty of people drinking, but tripping, you know, they're. You and know. smoking weed and uh, doing mescaline. There's a ton of shit going on there. I can't imagine anyone being like, hey, those guys are fucked up. This is bullshit. <laughs> well, I'm not sure, though. I mean, I think at a certain point, like. It's one thing to be high and be really cool and be playing really well. It's another thing to be high and standing around on stage. Well, if you're blowing the sound system, about yeah, it sucks. Talking, and, and that happened all day this day with the rain with other acts too. You know, not just the fuck ups, but the rain. You know, affected a lot of it. You know, Humidity. but when you're standing around on stage when nothing's working and the audience is sitting there and like you're just kind of you're talking to them because you've got a microphone. Not always a good thing to have a microphone in your hand. No. You know, when you got a microphone and you're talking to them and you it's feel clear the need that you're to just say out something. of your mind, you right. know, you're so high. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, that was annoying people. There's stuff in, in there where like, so, uh, there's a thing at the beginning of one of their songs, like, I, I almost played it, is this, when they finally got around to playing St. Stephen and somebody's, do you actually know any more than two songs? <laughs> this guy yells at them. When, you can hear it from the audience. Like, <laughs> the mics are picking up everything, you know. Right, right. So Damn Californians. So they finally play. And uh, also you got guys like, I'm sorry, I have to go back for a second. Sure. You got guys like Country Joe who's on stage saying, you know, like, we're we're from the Bay Area, man. And, you know, us Northern Californians, we're really, we're used to taking a we're lot of LSD. We're like, we're LSD professionals. Like, no one wants to hear how someone's an LSD professional while the stage <laughs> isn't working. And right. giving his advice on what you should and shouldn't do. No one wants to hear that sort of shit. Right. You know, and like... But they, they do. They play. There's great moments in it. I, I, the song that comes after this high time I thought was really good too. Um, that's you know 25 minutes out of a 28 <laughs> minutes out of an hour and 40 minute set. Which ironically, I, you know, other stuff I'm sure is cool too. But they weren't happy with it. Credence is next. Credence Clearwater Revival is the first band to sign a contract to play Woodstock. They were having a lot of trouble getting people to sign to play the, the, the festival, and the first really serious major band that signed. I don't know if they're the first band, period, to sign a contract. They were the first major band to sign one. Right. And this is a band that had a ton, by 1969, a ton of pop hits. I mean, big charted hits. Yeah, they were putting out these interesting things, like not just singles. They were putting out these two-sided singles in which both sides would be singles. And they had a huge, more than any other band, I think, in history, these two-sided singles they had. They had six or seven that were just massive. Right. Um and they're a very big band at this point, and they're the first major band to sign and agree to play the festival, which right. which gets the ball rolling, really gets everyone else to do it. 
Um, and everyone loved Credence. All the people in the industry, they didn't love each other too much. But everybody in the industry loved them. Management, from what I've read, other musicians. By Credence signing, really did yeah. vault this thing into uh, an actual event. But they were probably supposed to play around dinner time, and they're actually going to go on at 12.30 a.m. in the morning. <laughs> you know, it's, uh, They were probably supposed to play around 6. It's 12.30 at the point where they actually get on stage. John Fogarty said at the time it, it looked like hell in the audience. The quote I found from him is, we were ready to rock out, and we waited and waited and waited, and finally it was our turn. There were a half million people asleep. (laughs) These people were out. It was like a painting of a Dante scene, just bodies from hell all intertwined and asleep, (laughs) covered with mud. And this is the moment I will never forget as long as I live. A quarter mile away in the darkness, on the other edge of this bowl, there was some guy flicking his bick. And in the night I hear, don't worry about it, John, we're with you. And he said, I played the rest of the show for that guy. <laughs> that one guy. Uh, That's great. Um, and it's a very different vibe when they hit the stage. Not that they can't, like, jam out and stuff, but they are a driving rock band. They're a driving rock band. Also a band that could do long-form stuff like Keep on Chuglin, Suzy Q. They, they did songs that went on and on. Yeah, I mean, they they'll did... play. But, I mean, it is, it's not floaty. No, like like no. Dark Star is. They are, there is a beat and they are driving. It's like a fucking freight train when they hit the stage. And you'll hear it. I'm going to play you the first two songs of the set. They run right into each other. And this by is, the way, how many songs did they play? They played, oh God, I don't I think they played, I, I can look it up. They so played they about only, 11 songs. 11 no, I'm sorry, songs. They, they play 11 songs. 11 songs in 50 minutes. Yeah, and the last two are essentially 20 minutes long together. So, so yes. they played they played nine songs in 30 minutes. But, you know, they have a lot of three-minute songs, you know, and they open with a fucking rock and Born on the Bayou into Green River. Interesting thing about this band, they are so steeped and stewing in southern, like, Swampy. southeastern, south, like, Louisiana yes. swamp music, and they're from Berkeley. They're from, well, from El Cerrito, just north, you know, like, the next town over from Berkeley, um, they grew up there, but they're John Fogarty is so steep in, in his band. They are like a freight train ripping through the swamps of it's Louisiana, so and arriving point. in northern New York to play here. And it's so amazing. You make a great point about Creedence and about John Fogarty's writing. Kind of reminds me of Bernie Toppin's fascination with the American West, or some of these other guys who write who are nowhere near where they're sort of where they write a lot of their music about. And, and if you listen to these first two songs specifically, these songs are about the bayou, about the, like you just said, everything there, the swampy aspect of it. It was almost like, he talks things about Cajun queens and as if he's always been there. <laughs> he's a the funny thing is they, they managed, unlike I think Bernie Toppin and Elton John, they really conjured up in the music too. And the band does that. The band yeah. wrote about the South. A lot of those guys were from Canada and I know a lot of that has to do with yeah. uh, but, but but I mean the point is that it's it, that's but they an were country point. folk, you know, and, and Levon's from Arkansas, right? But they even even in Canada, they're not like they're definitely country folk somewhat, you know. Yeah. But listen, this is the beginning of Credence, and the difference is, this is the first two songs they're set. They're ready to play. They're tired of sitting on the sidelines, and they're not fucking around. <laughs> <laughs> Get your right now, now. 
Thank you very much. Man, right, you can feel the difference right off the bat. They are they are driving and they are they are it's like a train. They're just like they're going both on Green Born on the Bay and Green River, which are the songs that open the show. They're just fucking chugging through that shit. And and it's 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 intense. It must have woken some people up, I would think, you know. That's starting to pass out, you know. Yeah, and I would say that that it's a great example of two excellent Bay Area rock and roll bands with completely different styles, obviously, both known for their live performances. Although, you know, Creedence, of course, and I'm just going to reiterate that in a moment, uh, known for their hits, especially their singles. And their long-form albums they had some amazing ones. But, uh, but both, you know, obviously, very schooled, extremely ready-to-go live bands. Even though the Grateful Dead are sloppy, high, their sound system's fucked, they 
bust everything up. But th- when they get going, you could tell why they're a great live band. And this band, as you said, wastes no time in getting right. They're they're a machine, a tight, tight machine. It really also illustrates how like dominant and how vital the Bay Area music scene was right then wow, at this yes. point in life because uh, day two at Woodstock, 3,500 miles away from the Bay Area, 3,000, whatever it is, and it, it's how many bands from the Bay Area? Joe McDonald uh, went to Berkeley, started the fish there, Santana, Bay Area, San Francisco band started in San Jose, uh, then uh, well, what's Janis called? Then, Big the Grateful Dead, there. Credence, both Bay Area bands, right. Some Sly and the Family Stone, a, a Berkeley and L.A. band. Jefferson Airplane. And then the Jefferson Airplane. You know, like, uh, all, the bands that played that day, of the bands that were booked to play, almost all of them are from the Bay Area, with a few exceptions, like The Who and uh, Janice, kind of, you know. But Janice and Big Brother, you know, Big Brother is a San Francisco bones. band, but, yeah. you know, Janice is Texas. So, yeah, you know, it's, it's mostly San Francisco bands from this point out, except for The Who. Uh, another thing I wanted to point out is that... Uh, it's hard to find a Woodstock collection where you get these full sets, but they right. are out there. Uh, there was a, a a series put out a few years ago called the Woodstock Experience in which, I don't know the record company, but they paired the album one of those bands was doing right then in a double set with that album and their entire Woodstock set. Uh, and it was done with... Uh, I heard uh, the Joe Cocker one. Not the Joe Cocker one, though, but Janis Joplin's set... With okay. the Cosmic Blues Band, uh, Santana set, Sly and the Family Stone set, Jefferson Airplane set, Edgar Winter set, were all done in oh, these Johnny double West. album sets. Johnny Winter set, right? Although Edgar plays with him in it. Yeah. We're all done in these double album sets a few years ago. I think with like uh, Sly and the Family Stone, it's Stand and their whole Woodstock set. With Jefferson Airplane, it's uh, Volunteers and their whole Woodstock set. Janice is the Cosmic, got them Cosmic Blues Mama, right? And the set. Uh, uh, so those are available if you wanted to get the entire sets by those people, as well as uh, which, on in some of their cases, are absolutely worth getting. I know this week they're releasing the full Credence set. Um, it's the week I think this this program is going to come out. Our podcast will come out. They're releasing the full Credence set. I had to go find some of them uh, bootleg downloads. Right. Um, but that's a really good set as well. Uh, the the Hendrix set is out, and the Joe Cocker set are both released separately. Um, these are some of them are really worth getting. There are these Woodstock things. This box set I got, which is Woodstock '50: Back to the Garden. It's a, as I think I mentioned in one of the other podcasts, it comes out in like a two, a four, or a five, a ten CD set. And then there's one coming out that's like eight hundred dollars, which is a thirty-eight CD set. Which I don't know about that one, but right, right. Um, but these things are all if you if you want to find some of them. And I think in the cases of certainly Sly and the Family Stone, uh, the Credence. The Who is actually a whole record release of their set. Right, and they practically do the entire Tommy record. Yeah, it's really cool. Um, uh, so I, this is a, a song that I got. That's They released two songs ahead of time, Born on the Bayou and, and this next song, Proud Mary, from the Live at Woodstock record that's coming out this week. Uh, and I kind of want to play Proud Mary because I think it's really good as well. And by the way, if, if I may, if I just for the music yeah, geekdom uh, uh, doing some, um, some dottings of I's and, and crossing of T's. So I mentioned about how prolific these guys were in the charts and and i would just look it up to be sure and funnily enough they had an equal amount of big hits right after woodstock but leading up to it their first big hit was in september of 68 suzy q which we mentioned that came to number 11 but then on this run in 69 january 69 number two proud mary which you're about to play 
Right after that, in May of the same year, a couple of months before Woodstock, Bad Moon Rising gets to number two in the U.S. charts. Then they come out in August of 1969, right when this is happening, Green River goes to number two. They get just knocked out of the number one spot. Three top ten hits within a year. Then they come in November with Down on the Corner, number three in the U.S. charts. Fortunate Son, number 14 in the charts. 1970, they start off with Traveling Band, Who'll Stop the Rain. You mentioned that double-A side. Uh, number two on the charts, Traveling Band. Um, right after that, number four in the charts, up, up Around the Bend, Run Through the Jungle was a double thing. Number four. Um, number three in the charts, up around the bend. This is looking out my back door, number two in August of 1970. They just keep coming with top five hits after the other. It's really remarkable. It does make a difference when you have a guy who can write songs like, like John Fogarty could. He wrote these songs. The first one is a cover, Susie Q, obviously. But after that, those are all, all songs, songs written by him. Yep. And they're incredible. They are. So check this out. This is, this is coming out uh, this week from the, on the Live at Woodstock record. This is Proud Mary.
I I don't know why I give the Grateful Dead shit for playing long songs. It's uh, an hour and a half podcast so far. We've played a total of five songs. <laughs> and up till about ten minutes ago, we'd played a total of two songs in an hour, of uh, an hour and 20 minutes or so right. of podcasts. So uh, I guess talking on stage just runs in the family, so to speak. Indeed. Uh, but it was su- it's super cool uh, hearing these Creedence songs from Woodstock. Never heard them. Never yeah, heard and them. I think they're actually great in this set. Uh, the funny thing is, as we mentioned before, John Fogarty's feeling and the experience he had there led him to think their set was a piece of shit and refused to out- allow the producers to use film or any audio from CCR set in the soundtrack or the movie. Yep. And as a result, people forget that Credence was even there. But they are the first major band to sign, and the truth is they play a fucking blistering set, as far as I can tell. I've heard almost every song off it now from downloading them. There's like a vicious version of Commotion, a great version of Bad Moon Rising, uh, interesting version of Nighttime is the Right Time. They end with, after playing everything at about three minutes long, two, two and a half minutes long songs, they end with a like a nine minute Keep on Chuglin and a ten and a half, eleven minute Susie Q. It's, it's just because they don't in these first nine songs don't get the idea that Creedence, that, uh, Creedence can't jam out because they do they sure can and we're gonna let you go on one of those we wanna play Keep on Chugling because it's James's favorite Creedence song it is this one features a uh, breakdown in the middle where they're actually it's not a breakdown they're completely chugging through it while John plays a <laughs> uh, pretty wild cool harmonica solo over the top of things before coming back and ripping the, the skin off it with his guitar again uh Still August 16th, 1969, still day two at Woodstock, and we're not done. We'll be back next week with Janis Joplin, Sly and the Family Stone, The Who, and Jefferson Airplane in a futile attempt to get through day two. <laughs> Somehow, <laughs> so in our, it'll be there. our third podcast on the subject next week. I hope to God we finish the fucking day. It's raining. It's actually raining here. It's no, raining it's just here just like at Woodstock, and that's... The way our life is going. So I hope you enjoyed this week's podcast or us talking about mm-hmm. uh, the music we played and mostly us talking about the music we're not playing. Uh, <laughs> this has been the Underwater Sunshine Podcast. We're going to send you off with Keep On Chewing. I'm Adam. That's James. Peace. Late. <laughs>